who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. Each Monday, I bring you a brand new full-length episode covering something from a wide variety of topics. And then every Friday, come meet up with me again for a mini What's in the News episode so you can stay up to date on everything that's going on in the world. Check out Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And rage on. Realm presents Born to the Blade, Episode 7. Chapter 1. Michiko. The markets of Toife fascinated Michiko like nothing else. Not even the largest of the Murtican ports boasted of such excess and experiences. Not these sounds, these audacious flavors. Who knew that you could have spicy ciders accented by wasp honey and blackberries and to enjoy the sensation of mala and desserts? No cook in Kakute would dream of such blasphemy. Every stall, no matter how shabby its exterior might seem, revealed another pinhole into something unfamiliar. And there was no one to tell the shopkeepers that this was inappropriate, or that this was inefficient. No bureaucrat with threadbare smiles full of persuasive reasons to edit an inventory. Under different circumstances, Michiko might have devoted a life here, become a priestess of its streets, and read joy in every new shipment of goods from afar. Michiko tugged at her collar, self-conscious, and smoothed the palm along her scalp. At some point in the future, she would need to ask Kensuke about his hairdresser. If she were to one day take over his position, she would need to look the part, and the Byzantine customs surrounding warder aesthetics demanded an entourage to navigate. But that was a problem for another day. She searched the alley for signs of a dechike, frowning. The crowd thickened as lunch hour poured a hundred fresh bodies into the narrow lanes and the air sizzled with voices demanding kanji, adobo, grilled pork knuckle, dumplings of every variety, accoutrement of fried pork skin, sides of pickled onions, roasted yam, broccoli served six ways. Michiko could see nothing through the throng of diners, crammed together on wooden stools outside carts the size of her closet in the embassy. Michiko wove past two Vanian women, both casually garbed, 
Traditional black togas worn over hakama trousers, the latter a nod perhaps to Murtikan influence or some mimetic souvenir from the colonies. Gladiator sandals, armored epaulets on their left shoulders, support for the broadswords they wore. Neither paid Michiko any attention, although the Kuloi traders Michiko Pass did. Are you looking for Wadakante? Asked a lean young man, his features blunt, hair of a luminous halo. He propped an elbow atop the massive crate he stood beside. The container was sternum high and four times his width. Michiko studied him. In complexion, he was much paler than both Adechike and Ojo, freckled along the cheekbones. But Michiko could see a commonality in facial structure. Not that it mattered, or had mattered since the ignorant past when ethnicity was still a barometer of authenticity. No, uh, not exactly. She searched the traitors' faces, committing each countenance to memory, their individual tics and demeanors cataloged for future reference. Despite the embassy colors that they wore, the traitors, from the languidly smiling girl with cornrows to a stout man with the manners of a mercenary, his muscles knotted with fat, were strangers to Michiko. Guilt prickled at her then. She should know them. She understood this. But perhaps she'd been spending too much time looking inward. I was looking for his understudy, uh, Dejike. A rumble of conversation in a dialect that Michiko couldn't decipher. More vowels, more rhythm than even the norm. She steadied a hand against the hilt of her sword, a warning in the motion. This was business. Michiko would not tolerate any obstructions, and neither would Kakute. The movement had its intended effect. It brought the traitor's eyes down to Michiko's blade, their smiles closing into polite expressions. You'll find him in the warehouse, ma'am. That subtle inflection curled Michiko's lips. Whatever welcome she'd once possessed, it was gone now. She jerked her chin down, performed a couloy salute that earned no reciprocation, only cool looks and silence. Flushing at the blatant discourtesy, Michiko turned and fled down the road to the warehouses. Adechike. The myriad islands kept their storage facilities in close proximity, the traffic policed by Toife authorities. Ostensibly, it was to promote a sense of community, the idea that regardless of where one might come from, everyone required the same things, food, water, basic comforts, things that reminded you of home. But as Lavinia once pointed out to Michiko, it was really to minimize the risk of sabotage. The Kuloi youth looked up at Michiko's exclamation, his face immediately coming alive with his easy, familiar smile. He stood in the tide of workers and traders, the fulcrum of nearby activity, his arms heavy with clipboards. Kulo was moving something into their warehouse, a lot of potentially valuable somethings. Enormous blackwood crates triple locked against whatever catastrophe they feared. What could they possibly be doing? Michiko filed the thought away, suddenly disconcerted, as she jogged to a halt in front of Adechike, the latter already spreading his arms for a hug. Michiko! He broke her name with a pause, kissing her once on each cheek. What are you doing here? Can the kakute your thoughts? It was just a moment ago that I was standing there, thinking about how nice it'd be to see a good friend, spend a moment. Despite herself, Michiko laughed. Flatterer. Hardly flattery if it's true. Adechike protested, palming his breastbone. Today, he dressed like any of the municipal workers, bereft of even Kuloi colors. No sword, nothing to signify his office. 
The ensemble made Michiko feel overdressed, and to her surprise, slightly resentful. I have missed you. With everything that's going on, all the chaos, it feels like I haven't seen any of my friends of late. I miss those early days, don't you? When it was all so simple. I understand completely. Halfway words that house no favoritism, no indication as to whether Michiko agreed or disagreed with Adechike's opinions, only that she acknowledged them. She smiled thinly. Actually, I was hoping to speak to... Footsteps, crisp and deliberate. The two turned to find Takeshi striding up to them. Takeshi, who was long-boned and pallid from his monastic lifestyle. Takeshi, who seemed unthreatening even in the height of the gauntlet. Today, however... He seemed different. Ah, just the man I was hoping to see. A Adechike untangled from Michiko to stride forward, arms already parted for an embrace. Your timing is impeccable, my friend. Our cargo shipments just arrived, and imagine my surprise when I was told that they'd found a cache of... Takeshi unsheathed his blade with a single fluid motion and carved the dying silence into the air before anyone could react. The space around Adechike imploded into shards. Filaments of violet, each no wider than a hair, circled his throat. The Ikaro warder twitched his sword down and Adechike stumbled forward, choking, dragged down by that web of light. What do you think you're doing? Michiko snarled, drawing her blade. The Ikaro warder ignored her. His voice shook as he spoke, his manner stilted from emotion. Adechike, I pray that you understand that I take no pleasure in this or what I'm about to say. Your friendship was deeply valued, but... Beginning today, I must ask that you keep your distance from the Ikarin Embassy. Whatever agreements were made by our predecessors shall continue to be honored. However, I am hereby nulling any arrangements we have personally made. While I treasured our interactions, I simply cannot expose Ikaro to a fox-throated traitor any longer. Silence swallowed the square. Adechike blanched at the accusation, mouth gaping, eyes going wide, while Takeshi's face remained impassive. I apologize that it has come to this, but I will not risk the safety of Ikaro for the friendship of someone so untrustworthy. Understand that Ikaro will continue to uphold its promises to Kolo, but for both of our sakes, I suggest you keep your distance. He slit the sigil apart with a jerk of his wrist, sheathed his blade, jaw and posture tensed. Adechike sprawled across the cobblestones, shuddering, air swallowed in gulps. I will not go easy again. Above, a shadow pulled itself across the skies, unnoticed in the echo, and swallowed by the gloom, unheard by anyone save for the owner of an unpopular bar, a figure sighed and said, Damn it. Chapter 2 Chris Dechike Chris wrapped their knuckles against his door. Guiltily, at first, but the awkwardness receded as the silence lengthened, the noise of the knocking cushion by the inch-deep carpeting. They struck the door again, this time with a fist. A dead chique. Still, no answer. Chris swore under their breath in every language they could remember, the bridge of their nose pinched between two fingers. It hadn't been a good day. This week had been a catastrophe, a nightmare of unexpected circumstances. First, it was Anton and his endless questions, his insistence that Chris accompany him on ill-advised quests for low-cost physicians. So much wasted time. Then it was the trade deal. 
Chris had expected, even hoped, that the trade deal would propel Rumika into a seat of authority, that the alacrity with which Chris had facilitated the arrangement would be seen as representative of their nation's resourcefulness. This would have been their moment. Atachike! The quiet held. You know what? Forget it. I hope you've got clothes on, Adechike, because I am coming in. Not for the first time, Chris found himself grateful for Alex's boundless paranoia. They'd insisted, among other things, that Chris learn how to properly kick down doors, aim at the side of the lock with the heel of your foot, be exacting with the pressure applied. No theatrics, nothing fancy. It had to be precise. The door swung open after the first blow, only minimally damaged. Alex, as always, had provided excellent advice. Through the gap, Chris caught their first glimpse of Adechike's room. Canvases hung from the ceiling by silver strings spinning lazily in place. The images contained within were otherworldly. The skies and palettes that could never exist in nature. Faceless bodies suspended mid-combat, their muscles described by minimal brushstroke. And more nebulous splendors, vivid abstractions rendered in gilt and colored wax, batik corporalization of ideas half-formed. Were those Adechike's creations? Chris wondered as they slunk into the room, marveling at its neatness. The furnishings were sumptuous, more lavish than Chris would have expected of Adechike. The bed in particular was a study in excess. Chris couldn't conceive a reason to have so many pillows, so many extraneous layers of glimmering fabric. Something he'd inherited from Mojo, maybe? Or another warder? Who knew? It occurred to Chris then that they had no inkling as to who Adechike really was. No idea as to what he enjoyed outside of hibiscus wines and long evenings in the tea house, asking question after question, as though answers powered the engine of his heart. When was the first time Adechike had argued with his parents? Where did his religious beliefs lean? Did he dream of becoming a warder because he was dazzled by the romance of it, or was he looking to martyr himself in the name of Coulot? Everything Chris knew about Adechike felt like it had been curated, picked through by a careful hand, all the parts coming together to craft a public persona that was universally likable. Even Adechike's flaws were endearing. They made him human, gave the world a reason to bond with him, to develop rapport. A cold frisson rolled down Chris's spine to pull in their belly. Nausea followed after. Suddenly, they felt stupid, hopelessly naive. Why hadn't they realized this before? Why hadn't it occurred to them that Adechike's warmth, his puppyish enthusiasm for everything, could have been an act? Because Chris had wanted, no, needed him to be a friend. They swallowed the thought. Bile bitter against their tongue. Chris prowled through Adechike's room, carefully pulling out drawers and rifling through the folders neatly stacked across every horizontal surface. Their heart plunged as they discovered handwritten dossiers. Observations about the warders, about their juniors, about Toife, about Chris. Warder Conte, I do hope you'll forgive me for barging into your chambers so late at night, but I found these documents in Adechike's chambers and... Did you have permission to enter? Chris halted, a palm flat across the papers cradled in an arm. Ojo's voice held a quality that they'd never heard before, a flatness like a fillet of old turkey breast, stringy, serviceable, and bereft of any personality. It wasn't Ojo's voice, wasn't the rich bass that rang with a thousand nuances, expressive as any stage performer's. 
Ojo took his time in rising from his chair. He shut his ledger first, smoothing a wine-dark ribbon into place before he set the book aside. Then he rose, every inch the politician surprised in his own home. His expression was courteous but cold, his eyes placid. Under the lens of his regard, Chris felt uncomfortably like an intruder. They drew a step back. The shadows were syrupy and velvet, absolute, save for the dim corona of light wrapped around Ojo's seat. The warder had been working by the flame of a single candle. Briefly, Chris caught himself wondering what had demanded so much careful attention that Ojo couldn't wait for the day to return or tolerate more luminance in the space. Did Adechike give you permission to enter? There it was, the kindness that Chris remembered, only tempered, tamped down, clinical. Chris swallowed. N no, he didn't, he... You broke into his quarters then. Ojo paced forward, hands behind his back. The emphasis was subtle but clear, a gleam of light along the guillotine's curve. Ojo's meaning might as well have been written in block letters above his head. I hope you had good reason. The shipment. Ojo's voice was cold, absent of any interest in Chris. What about the shipment? Y you, the words tangled, you... And what about Adetike? What has Adetike done to warrant this gross violation of his private space? Ojo strode up to Chris, stopped a palm's breadth from contact. It was an insult, a challenge. It had to be. Before, Ojo had been nothing but conscientious, careful to observe correct behavior in the presence of the various nations. He knew every honorific, every genuflection, every do and don't do archived in history. To have Ojo violate Chris's personal space like this with full knowledge of what it meant, it had to be intentional. The Remicon warder curled their fingers around the hilt of their blade, conscious at last of the possibility that Ojo, despite his reassurances, might have never been fighting at full capacity, that Chris had never seen Ojo pushed. They drew a shuddering breath. They could smell sandalwood and frangipani. Floral scents, heady and suffocating, overlaid the odor of bone ink and polished metal. I have reason to believe that Adetike may have betrayed Rumika's trust. Oh? Almost casually, Ojo unsheathed his blade and held the weapon atop his palms, hands tipped this way and that, the light sluicing over the runes embossed upon the steel. Chris had always admired the weapon, always envied Coulot and the artistry of their smiths. Every nation, of course, knew how to craft weapons, but it was Coulot who'd hollowed their soil of airstone who made the most beautiful swords of all. How is that? Chris stiffened. That is private information. Well, you have my apologies, Warder. He said, the title uncurling like an epitaph. I am concerned to learn that you feel this way about a member of the Kuloi ambassadorial staff. If you locate any evidence to support your case, I invite you to return... You know, I'd never say anything like this about a Adetike unless- To the embassy and provide said evidence, Ojo continued relentless. Until then, I am forced to ask that you leave the premises. Were it not for the fact that Rumika and Kulo enjoy such a strong relationship, I'd have requested your arrest. You trespassed. You also stole vital documents from a representative. Ojo, please. You know I intended no harm. Of my nation. Under any other circumstances, Water Den, there would be dire consequences. But again, I value the relationship between our nations. Now, 
His voice dipped into a rumble. Leave. No. Chris slid a step backward, blade freed, the tip held to Ojo's throat. You're gonna listen to me. You're... I challenge you to a duel, right here, right now, for the right to let myself be heard. Really? Ojo slitted his dark eyes, a smile crooked at the younger man. I accept. There was no contest. Chris was faster than Ojo, more athletic, but Ojo had the advantage of familiarity. He knew the space, its dimensions, how far his blades could stretch, where they'd tangle in the curtains, where the furniture might serve as a barrier, where they function as obstacles, how the architecture might impede his opponent for a gasp of a second. Chris possessed nothing of that. Each sigil that they fired, every one sloppier than the last, muddied by emotion, was countered over and over, parried by Ojo's blades. In desperation, they chiseled spider's grip into the air and ran up along a wall, spinning in time to catch Ojo's swords along his own weapon. It's over, Ojo murmured. Too late, Chris recalled the versatility of Ojo's preferred style, the real use of the smaller blade. They could only watch as the Kulo warder carved the sigil for return to Earth, could only let out a shout as gravity punched a hook through their belly and pulled them down into the carpet. Impact brought an explosion of stars, a ringing in their right ear, and the world pendulumed in Chris's vision, its edges greased with violet. Ojo crouched down beside Chris, even as the doors to the office opened and attendants in neat uniforms filed into a semicircle around the prone rumican. Expressionless, Ojo plucked the sword from Chris's nerveless grip and passed it to an aide, who held it with the reverence of a man who'd watched a god die. This doesn't make me happy, you know, Ojo said. Chris did not reply. None of this. I'd have much preferred that we'd kept to what we know, to the rituals and the routines we come to enjoy as a community in Toifei. But, unfortunately... His voice ebbed. Chris's view gyred as they were lifted to their feet, propped up by two men who said nothing, their manner surgical. No undue cruelty, no unwarranted compassion. Their duty was to migrate Chris from embassy to exterior. This is war, my friend. Wander with us into a world of magic. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with and reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. We'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Chapter 3, Michiko Though not even torture could wring the confession from her soul, Michiko had always believed that the Kakute Embassy was superior to all others. Unlike the other consulates, it possessed innumerable gardens, small ponds that housed catfish and little emerald frogs, places that could be used for private meditation and communion with one's ancestors. There was even a small flock of imperial swan cats, bronze-bodied and sleek. Even the offices themselves were spacious, built of polished wood, carrying the faint smell of incense. Today, however, it all felt claustrophobic. Michiko ringed her throat with a hand. You're... you... what? I'm... Kintsuke looked out the window, mouth pursed, his long frame tiger-striped by the morning's light. Nothing, actually. As of several minutes ago, I am merely another civilian. 
aimless and unimportant in the colonies. How? I, I, did Lavinia relieve you of your duties? No. The bearer's smile curved his mouth. Were there orders? What, what happened? I, I don't understand. I, I am stepping down. It is as simple as that. Michiko barked a rough laugh. Somehow the room seemed to be shrinking. You can't. I can. This is wrong. This is exactly right. There are procedures. There's a process. We, we have to tell Toife authorities. Contact Kakute. This needs to be approved by at least seven of Martika senior officials. Not to mention the fact that we're supposed to... Those are guidelines. Kensuke shucked his formal coat, undid the belts that attested his office, removed the badges, the hair ornaments he'd worn since his appointment as warder. The sword followed next. The ceremonial shinai. Everything that embodied the station of warder. He laid them across the desk with a ritualistic precision before looking up at Michiko. Those are not rules. I can't be warder. Michiko dropped her hand. I'm not ready to be warder. There is no way. I, I can't. I, I'm not. I'm not ready for this. For a heartbeat, Kensuke's gaze gentled. I uh, really wish this could be different. Why are you doing this? Are you under orders from Lavinia? Warder, that isn't my title anymore. Nonetheless, Kensuke stroked his hand across the coat he'd worn for years, fingers walking the brocade like the road to a childhood home. His expression reflected a similar sentiment. It held a wistfulness, an inward-facing melancholy, a sense that wherever Kensuke was looking, it wasn't at the present. He sighed. You're the warder now, Michiko. I can't be the warder. The words felt leaden, stupid. The older man shrugged, a loose clatter of his shoulders. You are now. Kensuke. Michiko gnawed down on her pride. P Please, I need... Her hands spasmed, fingers curving around the truth that Kensuke wouldn't yield. Anything, she thought desperately and wondered if it'd make a difference if she paid him with the humiliation of such a revelation. Decorum didn't endear a person to another. Adechike had taught her that. Michiko flicked her gaze up to Kensuke's face, his visage blank, bereft of anything that approached sympathy. For all of its grief, none of it was for her. She swallowed and scissored her shoulders back, riding her posture. For Kakute's sake, I'll do what I must. More platitudes, more nonsense words, more sounds that meant nothing at all. Outside, distantly audible, the clack of wheels and hoofbeats, the murmur of toife stirring. Avanian called a prayer in a gorgeous alto. Children's laughter, shrill and careless. Life continued its orbit. Michiko couldn't help but resent the world for its indifference. I'm sure you will. Kensuke undid his top knot and allowed his hair to free fall along his back, a sheet of oiled darkness, the pattern shaped into his skull, now hidden. Bereft of his accoutrement, dressed down in taupe and fawn, he seemed smaller somehow, diminished. Michiko, a stutter of noises, stillborn words. Yes, Kensuke inhaled. Or whatever it is worth, understand that this isn't personal. This has nothing to do with Martika either. 
a beat? Not directly, at least. As for the answers you want, well, the office is yours now, Michiko. I hope you find what you're looking for. Chapter 4. Anton Nothing was going as Anton had planned. Not his life, not his travel plans, not his business, not his relationship with Cassia. Especially not his relationship with Cassia. Anton stared at the doors of the Vanian embassy, his stomach writhing with an unfamiliar emotion. Anxiety, he thought. Or possibly an excess of spice. Anton spent half a heartbeat weighing the two possibilities before nodding to himself. Definitely an excess of spice. He wasn't worried. Fear was for Mertikans, for Kuloi, for Vanians and their labyrinth of rules, those stupid rules, legislating an existence that should be spent on joy instead of endless exercise and boring, boring combat drills. Haddock were never afraid. Anton? In answer to the invocation of his name, Anton leaped three inches backward, hands slapping against the scabbard of his rapier. On guard! Arjo let out a low, exasperated sigh. Have you been licking barnacles again, Anton? The captain of the Blue Fang furrowed his brow, even as he plucked at the folds of his shirt, a silken delight with ruffled sleeves, more decorative than he preferred, but he'd hoped Cassia would be charmed by the flamboyance. Faced with Harjo's scrutiny, Anton suddenly found himself with second thoughts. This, much like the unease that had colonized his belly, was quickly attributed to a poor choice in gastronomic pleasures. No. Anton then added, and that was a strange thing to say. No one licks barnacles for pleasure, not unless they're cooked. Even then, it seems like a much better idea to eat them. Although, why anyone would try to eat barnacles when they could have? Harjo strode forward, a specter in indigo, his attire despairingly functional, save for the flash of golden hoops at his ears. What are you hiding, Anton? He crossed his arms. Why do you think I'm hiding anything? Because you, old friend, can't keep a secret to save your... I can absolutely keep a secret. You can't. Yes, I can. No, you... Arjo exhaled loudly. We're not having this discussion. And more important, I'm not letting you pretend you did not completely ruin that last deal we were... I have no idea what you're talking about. Keep him talking, thought a voice in Anton's head, one quieter than all the rest. It was his Penelope voice, he'd decided some time ago, measured and amused and lethal. Keep him talking, it repeated, as Anton two-stepped away from Harjo. Because you won't let me finish. The other Harok drew his sword, banged the flat of the blade against a fluting column. Stand still. Anton frowned again. No. I know you're hiding something. I know that look on your face. You're a lot of things, Anton, but you're a terrible liar. Arjo growled, stalking forward. But you're the worst duelist. Arjo froze, dismay and a kind of confused reproach warring for space on his countenance. He sighed again, shorter and sharper than before. I don't change the subject. But it's true, you're terrible. You've never won a match with me. Possibly because Anton had made it a point to avoid unnecessary conflict. No reason to put his reputation at risk, after all. And now you're hoping I'll forget all about it and focus on your silly, completely unfounded suspicion that I might be hiding something. For once in your life, be reasonable and stop playing the jester. I know you're hiding something. Is it the girl, Anton? Do you know where she is? She has a name. 
Anton almost snapped before he caught himself, hopping atop the black iron balustrade that wrapped around the Vanian embassy. The fluttering in his abdomen cooled. Of course Harjo would be involved. He'd do anything for money, even sell out the desperate. Maybe, but even if I did, I'd never tell you. Anton saluted Harjo and kicked from the rails, an elegant backflip that he transitioned into triple somersaults, knees held to his chest. As the sky yawned beneath him, hungry, Anton thought to himself, not for the first time, that he was very lucky to be Haroki. To say that the former warder of Kakute had left a mess would be to lie, Michiko decided grimly, even as she sorted through the detritus of his departure. His office was a travesty. Kensuke had never been what anyone would call immaculate, but this went beyond commonplace untidiness. Drawers sat upturned across the wooden floorboards, bleeding documents. Closets had been thrown open, safes were ransacked of their contents. Whatever Kensuke had been looking for, it had to have been important. And whatever he was running from, Michiko reflected as she shuffled a pile of manila folders into the crook of an arm, it had to have been big. Perhaps he'd been involved with the Vanian zealots after all. She spread the folders along the desk she'd inherited, its edges framed with sky mantas, opening each in turn. Most held letters from Ritika officials, transcripts of conversations, and coded missives addressed to Kensuke from Lavinia's staff. Nothing from Vania, however. Traitorous as it felt, Michiko knew that her heart would survive Murtika's involvement. Murtika, after all, had a history with such things. But the idea of Vanya being entangled in this mess had sickened Michiko. The thought of a world war was beyond her. She raked her eyes over her discoveries again, attention lingering over the letters. At least half had sections blacked out or strips of paper carefully torn from the hole. But what could it all mean? A sigh unspooled as Michiko gathered the pieces she'd earmarked as most relevant, feeling the whole time like a thief in her own house. There were people she could consult, surely. Yokno, Ojo, Chris, Takeshi. Resources abounded. But in the time it took to breathe again, Michiko strangled the idea in its crib. No, not them. Here and there, her eyes snagged on their names, glaring between the lines of gibberish. Maybe these were intelligence reports? Perhaps not. No reason her friends could not be complicit in Murtika's schemes. After all, Kakute had its heroes too. Michiko swallowed against the implications, suddenly cold. Until she had more ammunition, it was likely best to keep her revelations to herself. Absently, she ran a thumb along the soft corner of a vellum sheet. The alphabet of ciphers used was old, older even than the span of Michiko's careful education something straight from Kakute's past. The one that Murtika had pared and pruned, snipped of conscientious branches and stitched up like a mouth that wouldn't cease arguing truths. An epiphany flexed. When all else failed, there was always family. Michiko collected her ritual paraphernalia from her bag, but not all of it. She needed to be quick, and a full conference with her ancestors would invariably become mired in petty politics. Michiko lit her candles, a triage of joysticks and grip. No time to consecrate the area either, or procure offerings. Ordinarily, she'd be aghast, but Michiko thought as she folded cross-legged atop the floor, it'd likely be the Golden Lord who came howling into view first, and any opportunity to annoy him was when she gleefully welcomed. The air stirred with their murmurings, and Michiko breathed deeply as the ghosts of her past woke to her summons. 
Chapter 5. Ojo. Ojo shaded his eyes as he clambered onto the landing platform, the sun featureless white, the air sticky and warm on his skin. Through the slats of his fingers, he could see no clouds, nothing to obstruct that lacquered blue, save for one thing, the dreadnought. Its silhouette was broader than most Kuloi warships, broken in places where the cannons protruded, tumorous bulges riddling the hull. It was uglier than anything he'd ever seen, Ojo thought, dropping his hand as his eyes adjusted to the glare of the noonday. Clumsy, callously built, intended for artillery function and nothing else. A thing of deaths, a relic scraped from its grave and put back in the firmament. He was ashamed. The realization, blooming hot along the back of his neck and rancid in his mouth, left Ojo dumbfounded. The sight of the warship shamed him. It stood antithetical to everything he'd built, everything that Kulo had advocated, had fought for in the recent past. But idealism was always the first casualty of conflict. Warder Kante. Yokno's voice came from the east, stilted with anger. I was hoping you could explain the meaning of this. Old friend, Ojo said, then hesitated. The truth lay trapped between his teeth, viscous, indignant at the lie that pressed against the roof of his mouth. I wish it hadn't come to this. I wish this wasn't necessary. I wish I could tell you everything. Sentences died midway to articulation, duty murdering them in the birth canal. It isn't what you think. Yokno cocked his head, his regard glacial, his mouth thinned to a line in the sand. Really? Tell me what I should think, then, Warder Kante. Tell me what. He slashed at the air with the side of his palm. This is, if not a show of power. A precaution. Ojo lied, smoothing his expression. A precaution. Yokno repeated, his voice fraying into a bark of angry laughter. That is what you're going with, then, Ojo. I thought you'd have respected me enough to at least come up with a better lie. But I see. Ojo breathed deeply. We've known each other for a long time, haven't we? This isn't the occasion to reminisce. It's since I first took up office. When we met, your predecessor was alive, was he not? It, what was his name? Ojo glanced at Yokno, the latter's arms folded beneath the drape of his peony-trimmed sleeves. What is your point, warder? The new inflection in Yokno's voice, a brittle formality that curved through Ojo's gut like a fishhook. My point is that I value our friendship, that I value Toife. When have I ever been anything but an advocate of the non-aggressive policies here? I have fought for what Toife believes in. I have stood my ground against Lavinia and everyone who would upturn the laws that have been set down. You, of all people, should know. So believe me when I say that I have no intention of seeing this fragile peace destroyed. The dreadnought is a precaution. Clear it out of the airspace. It's out of my hands. But you are Kuloi's warder, Ojo. Yukno started forward, a palm bent and raised, as though he cupped the world in his grasp. Today he seemed older than he'd ever been, the sun mapping the webwork of wrinkles bordering his eyes, his skin there pebbled with liver spots and moles. Under its veneer of powder, his flesh was almost translucent, crawling with veins of blue and emerald. 
Surely you can do something. I am a messenger, Ojo replied. I am the voice of my people. Nothing can be done without consensus. Whatever power you think I might have, none of it is mine. I act for Kulo. Then let us speak to Kulo. It would solve nothing. Ojo knew it was pointless from the moment Yukno proposed the idea. Nothing would change the mind of the council, least of all an audience with a foreigner. He longed to dissect the Kuloi class system for Yokno, explain the ways in which capitalism had molded their cultural sensibilities, what that meant, how their society was weighted toward those possessing of a fortune, and how people like Yokno, compassionate and selfless, were regarded as lesser, inept, naive children who'd waste their brief lives in servitude. Yokno wouldn't stand a chance. Kulo was a mercantile nation. It made sense that Ojo's island would revere the savvy and the pragmatic, those who'd barter sentimentality for the willingness to do what was right. And what was right would always be what was best for Kulo. The High Sky Party conferred between themselves. The four representatives garbed plainly, an insult that Yokno did not decipher. In silence, Ojo continued his vigil, occasionally correcting the eddies of the viewing pool with a slant of his blade, refreshing the runes where required. If nothing else, at least he could provide Yokno with clarity. Guildmaster Nenge murmured a word in a dialect that Ojo had almost forgotten. Fool. And allowed her mouth to climb into a smile. The space between Yokno's brows pinched. Master Seneschal. That was not Yokno's title. Not that Nenge cared in the slightest. We appreciate your concerns and will discuss the ramifications. I'd appreciate it if it was possible to expedite the procedure. Is there any way that you could communicate my concern to someone of senior rank? This is an urgent matter. If we do not attend to it now, the situation may devolve into an international emergency. Yes. The guildmaster traced her tongue over plum-dyed lips, teeth white against the bruised dark color. Her cohorts kept their silence. Absolutely. To his credit, Yokno saw through the charade mouth and forehead tightening further, his distaste for the council as evident as their disdain for him. But will you? Here, Isabri, rounder now than when Ojo had first encountered him in their youth, but no less imposing, expelled a booming, brassy laugh. I see that you're not entirely uneducated in politics. Ojo winced. Guildmaster, I'd advise that you maintain civility. Yokno. You bring us a servant to discuss matters of state, Nenge interrupted. I believe we've offered more civility than is decent. Beside Ojo, Yokno sucked in a harsh breath, his frame growing rigid. The conversation had slipped its gloves. No more niceties would be traded. The guildmaster smiled at Yokno's discomfort, satisfied as cats. Apologize, Guildmaster Nen- Or what? Her eyes dilated, her expression eager. What will you do, Warder Conte? Briefly, Ojo contemplated an argument, the words unsheathed in a hiss. But what was the point? He'd known from the moment that Yokno had proposed the idea. There was nothing either of them could do. Not like this. If he spoke against the council, he might be discharged, neutered of any ability to alter circumstances. If he kept his silence, if he held still as Yokno quaked in their polite laughter, Ojo might yet steer the destiny of his country. 
So, he said nothing. Oja only breathed, only schooled his face for impartiality, only held his place, eyes downcast, grip white-knuckled around his sword, as Yokno executed a bow, elegant even in his degradation. Nenge made a low, lazy noise. Placated by Ojo's silence, perhaps, she returned her attention to Yokno's smile, cloying. To answer your question properly, yes. Yes, we could. But as we are currently the highest authority, what happened to the truth of steel? The guildmaster cocked a strange look at Yokno, even as Isabri and Gaunt Adakwe, his hair a rooster's comb of black braids, Lean together to whisper banalities between themselves, anecdotes about local restaurants, trading tips. Only Amehuse, youngest of the four, maintained the pantomime of interest, her eyes darting guiltily between her companions. They failed their country. As is the case with weak, useless things that contribute nothing to their societies, they were removed and replaced with something better. Now, as I was saying before... We absolutely can forward your request of the highest authorities. Her smile was pure malice. I'll let you know if they show any interest in dignifying it. Abruptly, the viewing pool went dark, the surface so still that it might as well have been a lamina of the night sky, chiseled from the heavens and installed into a circle of marble. Ojo sheathed his sword and stood in silence with his old friend, until Yokno broke the quiet in a whisper. How has it come to this, Ojo? How did this all happen? I don't know, Ojo replied, gazing at his reflection. He could not recognize his own face in the pool. But if it was your country at risk, I imagine you would do the same. Yokno said nothing for a long, long time. When he spoke again, it was with the lilt of a stranger his voice parrot of familiarity. Still warm because Yokno was incapable of being anything but courteous, decorum inlaid into his very bones. But Ojo understood the truth of it. Whatever friendship had existed between them was gone now, payment for Ojo's silence. He did not turn around as the doors clicked shut behind him, only stared into the pool, silent, even though a sigil in the waters flickered to life. Chapter 6, Chris. Chris had heard a thousand stories about Lavinia, and they did not believe a single one. That afternoon, however, they found themselves revising their skepticism. Perhaps some of the myths could be true. Because how else could Lavinia stand alone like that in the shadow of the looming dreadnought? In the name of the Empress and the Mertican Empire, I order you to depart from Toifei airspace. She bellowed for the fifth time, a blot of polished armor against that Herculean mass. Yet there was no fear in her expression, no hesitation in her stance, nothing that an ordinary human might exude in a similar situation. Not even defiance, Chris realized, even as they searched the landing area. Lavinia carried herself with the air of someone who was not just assured of their place in the world, but certain that they were the access of the sun's rotation. In another individual, such bravado might have been arrogance, but arrogance intimated the possibility of doubt, and if Lavinia had ever experienced doubt in her life, Chris, they decided, would bread, batter, fry, and eat their boots. Do you hear me? 
Impatient, Lavinia struck the ground with her sword three times, each impact conjuring a bloom of sparks, every one larger than the last. It wasn't until Lavinia's volume became amplified threefold that it occurred to Chris that she'd been performing bladecraft, her movements so minute that they'd missed them entirely. You will move, she snarled, her voice thunderous, or you will be moved. Chris, what happened to you? The Rumican warder dropped their gaze at the sound of a familiar voice, their hand fluttering up to close over their bruised cheek. There was a Dechike, looking as though someone had carved the hope from his breast, his eyes bright with a yearning to do something, anything at all, so long as he could right this wrong that had entered the world. How many times did he practice to get that expression right? Chris searched a Dechike's countenance, looking for signs, Alex's warning ringing in their ears. Be careful of kindness, Chris. Be wary of smiles. They'd been careless before. It wouldn't happen again. Ojo and I had a disagreement. Those bruises. He, Ojo did this? Adechike's voice softened, its timing of theatrical precision. He ran his palm across his fleecy hair, sweat already beating his dark skin, his eyes still clutching that consternation that put upon compassion and Chris found himself marveling over how quickly love could pivot to loathing. Did, did you duel? Even so, this is ghastly. There's no reason for Ojo to have been so brutal. He's not Lavinia. Chris let the words bleed from them. At least Lavinia is honest. Dechike gawked fishmouthed at Chris for a palmful of seconds before realization dawned, his expression transforming from stupefaction to a kind of disbelieving horror. He reached for Chris, who rolled his shoulder away, sidestepping Adechike's fingers with a graceful quarter turn. Chris, my friend, you know I... Chris drew a smile in place, jaw flexing. Don't call me that. They looked away then, even as the cannons of the dreadnought pointed toward Lavinia. The air crisped with anticipation. The Mertican warder stood uncowed, sword driven into a crack in the landing platform, both palms braced atop the hilt, Chin tipped at an insolent angle. A breeze twisted the hair from her face, and Chris watched as Lavinia's mouth wrenched into another snarl. A tinny voice emanated from the vessel. Coulot claims the right to use the neutral airspace. Coulot warmongers, Lavinia roared back, gave up their right to anything when they tore an entire island from the skies. So long as Murtika stands, I will not permit you vultures such a feast of atrocities again and she cemented her point then with something Chris hadn't expected to see. Lavinia did not back down. Lavinia did not call for reinforcements, even though a dozen bladecrafters stood waiting, every last one of them tensed like hounds at the cusp of the hunt. Instead, the way she moved. If Chris had ever nurtured fantasies that they might one day outdo Lavinia, might one day see the Murtican warder beaten and bowed, those fancies were gone now and dissolved like a dream. Lavinia had been toying with him in the gauntlet, her movements bored and somnambulant compared to the precision Chris was now witnessing, the strength. They'd never cared much for the cognoscenti who'd speak only of bladecrafting's aesthetics. I'd always seen such individuals as pompous, even foolish, pseudo-intellectuals who only wanted another topic to trot out in conversation, as if bladecraft were a thoroughbred to be admired. But Lavinia's performance could not be described in any terms but those. It was art. It was beauty. It was the kill lengthened into a choreography. 
Lavinia whirled her sword above her head, carving the air into patterns, the light distorting where it broke against her blade, deepening to lilac and the darkest of rose. The colors thickened with every pass, every turn, Lavinia's sword lettering the world with shadows. Her power, for all of its animalistic fervor, tasted to Chris's tongue of mulberries cooked to a syrup, of marrow, of oak burning atop a low fire. Another calligraphic flurry of movements. The sigils had to be proprietary, like nothing Chris had seen before, too complicated to have been developed by consensus. This spoke to them of the luxury of time, something only a person like Lavinia might waste. Between the release of Chris's last breath and their inhalation of the next, the Mertican warder completed the final stroke. A ring of scimitars twitched to life, their bodies devised of Mertican colors and hung in midair like words unspoken. Lavinia raised a hand, two fingers extended, the others curled, and gestured toward the dreadnought. The blades leaped skyward. Almost immediately, the crew in the ship supplied their counter, a honeycomb of shields juttering into being. Faces lined the railings, anger and fascination evident in their expressions. How many would stand alone against a dreadnought? Cease your assault or we will be forced to retaliate, came the voice again, distorted by distance. Lavinia only laughed. Whatever you think is going on, it's not. It's not whatever you think it is. Whatever happened with Uncle, I promise... They jolted back to the present, heads snapping to the right. Adechi K stood beside them, a respectful distance away, thanks to shifting faces, and wrung his hands, looking for all the world like a dog that had been left out in a storm. Chris bit down on the impulse to extend comfort, reminding themselves over and again that this was an act, an affectation engineered to elicit sympathy. Stop, Adechi K. Just, I need you to stop. Adechi K twitched his head up. What? I need... Chris tore their eyes away as Lavinia began her second assault. A multiplicity of 10,000 serpents, the sigils transformed into recursive patterns, every new layer built into the bones of the last. I need you to stop, all right? I know the truth. I know everything. I still don't understand. Adachi Kate jerked forward and Chris withdrew in simpatico while the world around them lit up in flashes. Distantly, the thunder of cannonballs rolling across a deck Yokono's voice barking across the den, demanding a ceasefire. Chris swallowed their how-could-yous, drew themselves tall. I saw your notes. What note? Adechike's objection sank to a murmur, hand coming to rest atop his breastbone, his eyes wild and afraid. Got you, Chris thought bitterly. No, it's nothing like that. Nothing like that? Are you certain? I saw what you wrote about me. A razoring of a sob in his pleading, the words tumbling over themselves, falling too fast for the tongue to mold. Adechike tripped over his protests. He stumbled another three steps forward. I have a terrible memory. You know that. We've spoken about it. I, I write these things down so I can remember. Remember what? Chris spat. Remember our weaknesses? How best to disarm your friends? You kept records. Psychological profiles all neatly divided by weeks. You took note of how we altered over the months our favorite snacks, our... our sleeping patterns? You were studying us like... like we were animals. No, that that was never it. No, you're absolutely right. That was never it. You weren't studying us like we were animals. You were studying us like we were prey. Adechike flinched as though slept. 
Everything I told you about Rumika was recorded in those notes, all of it. The air did not hold its breath. It seemed to invert instead, collapsing onto itself, emptying the universe of sound, of meaning, of anything but Adechike's wounded visage. Chris thought they could hear his breath scraping in his lungs, the wet motions of Adechike's tongue as it worked to mold a new excuse. I trusted you. Those things I told you, that was between friends. You weren't supposed... You... Adechike could only repeat himself. Behind him, Lavinia, transfigured by bladecraft, was a smear of flickering light, zigzagging through the air like an enraged swallow. She was laughing, still exultant. I never meant any harm. I never... I am so sorry, my friend. If I'd known... Don't call me that, Chris whispered. Not one of the cannons had fired yet, I thought dimly. Likely because Lavinia was moving too quickly. Ever. We are not friends, Adechike. We stopped being friends when you... No. Please, Chris, betrayed me. And if you ever put Rumika at risk again, I will cut your throat and throw you from the highest tower of Toifei. Do you understand me? Their words were nearly drowned by a world-shattering crack. Lavinia slammed into the ground, cratering the frescoed stone. Please. Adachike wedged his fist in his mouth. It wasn't like that. Intention means nothing to a burning world. Goodbye, Adechike. I wish you luck with the rest of your life. Chris turned from him, from the sight of Lavinia battling a dreadnought, from everything limbed by the sun, and began their long walk back down into the dark. Chapter 7 Michiko A wound irised open in the hull of the warship, clean, a perfect oval the shape of the projectile that Lavinia had fired. She stared at her handiwork, satisfied. From where Michiko stood, she could see how Lavinia's blow had seared through the strata of plating, the innards of the ship maintaining its integrity despite the hole gouged into its side. And despite the ludicrousness of the event, the knowledge that Lavinia had taken on a dreadnought and its crew, Michiko found a moment to marvel at the Kulov vessel and the fact it stubbornly remained airborne despite the damage sustained. Lavinia was less than impressed. Pathetic, she growled, and the Kuloi claimed their ship's miss are the best in the skies. A paper tiger would be more resilient, don't you think, Bologna? I trust in your experience, Warder. Bologna responded, polite and bland. Lately, she'd begun to seem different, somehow. Michiko couldn't quite put a finger on it, but Bologna seemed more... subdued, perhaps? Meditative? Although for what reason, precisely, Michiko was uncertain. Perhaps, like everyone else, she'd finally tired of Lavinia's antics. And you, little mouse, what do you think? Michiko startled from her rumination. Lavinia was watching her, sword propped along the broad ledge of her shoulder, smiled disarmingly kind... Bologna stood an inch behind the older woman. As she and Michiko made eye contact, the young Mertican drew a thumb across her throat, a warning silently mouthed. What do I think? Michiko repeated, stalling for time. Once, a lifetime ago, she might have lunged for this opportunity to curry Lavinia's favor. But Michiko could no longer muster anything but a faint resentment. Even here, even as Toifei stood gaping at this show of power, Lavinia insisted on being worshipped. I think there is nothing like Murtika craftsmanship. 
A careful answer bereft of opinion. Michiko's smile as much a performance as the matinee in the tea house. Clever girl, Lavinia purred, and it was difficult to say if it was a compliment or admonishment. The woman's expression equally performative, absent of anything that might be construed as genuine emotion. Her eyes roamed up to the dreadnought again. I suppose it isn't... Oh, Empress, take them. Michiko trailed Lavinia's attention to the warship. Light bled and dribbled from its ruptured frame, ribbons of palest jade, the rivulets coiling upward, webbing the battered ship. As the women watched, the light became wood and girders of steel, and the air thrummed with the chorus of a hundred blade crafters in concert. All that hard work, and they'd undo it. No appreciation for art. Lavinia shook her head. Come on, little mouse, your turn. Time to show the world what Kakute can do. With all due respect, Warder, Michiko had been preparing for this precise moment. She bowed low, body curved as far as it could go. I can't. What? Lavinia's reply might as well have been hacked from a block of ice. I can't, Michiko repeated, straightening. The rules of my new office forbid my participation in such activities. Kakute be damned when Murtika tells you to jump, little mouse, you... Almost, she smiled. Michiko held Lavinia's wrathful gaze, and almost, almost, she broke, glee turning against the branches of her ribs. It is Murtikan law. I am the law, Oda no Michiko. I am the voice of the Empress. And what I say goes, except when it comes to matters decreed by the Empress herself. As her proxy, you are permitted to do anything, so long as it doesn't challenge her personal edicts. And the Empress, said Michiko, has decreed that all new Kakute warders must enter a probationary period in which they may only perform secretarial duty for their superiors. What a joy it was to worm that victory from Lavinia's trove, like a mouse who'd burglarized a dragon. Michiko could hardly maintain her neutral expression, excitement trilling in her bones. Great Aunt Reiko had been right. This was a loophole that Michiko could use to her advantage. And until the probationary period ended, Michiko would possess more freedom than she'd ever had. More important, it allowed her to make a fool of the Murtikan warder, a triumph that'd warm her even in the grave. Lavinia growled her frustration, a jaguar's shriek, and began barreling down on Michiko, who could only tremble at her approach. There was no point in putting up a fight. Unfortunately, she's right. There's not much we can do about it. Much to Michiko's surprise, Bologna stepped between the two women, her bulk eclipsing Michiko's own. Despite Lavinia's wrath and her own display of insolence, Bologna's posture was similarly relaxed. But I could be of service, Lavinia. Was that it? A grab for influence, a self-serving desire to cultivate Lavinia's favor? Maybe. It wouldn't be out of character for Bologna. But Michiko couldn't help but wonder... The Murtikan warder sighed exaggeratedly, although not before looking both Bologna and Michiko over, perhaps in pursuit of a conspiracy. The two younger women, neither turning to gaze on the other, permitted the inspection without complaint. At last, Lavinia surrendered, teeth bared in a grimace. Fine, you can help. As for you, Lavinia's sword was at Michiko's throat before fear could even register. I won't forget this. Michiko let her smile widen into something scintillant. Victory was a wine in which she'd been steeped. The world rose dark and giddy. I look forward to receiving your guidance.
When all this was done, Michiko decided she'd have a conversation with Chris regarding the amount that they drank. Quietly, the new Kakute warder padded into the tea house. It was late, and most of the customers had retired. Those few who remained were entranced by their respective companions, passed out, or drinking their way down into one of the two former conditions. Chris, of course, belonged to the last. Your liver is going to rot out of your stomach, said Michiko as she sat herself at Chris's little table in the corner. Empty pitchers filled the surface. They'd been drinking for hours. Dragon fruit brandy, as far as Michiko could tell, piquant and largely unripe. Nothing for anyone with class, but it had been a long day. The dreadnought, at least, was gone, summoned to purposes more impressive than mere intimidation. They hissed at her. Go away, you prude. If you die of liver failure, who is going to stand for Rumika and the council? Don't care. Not my problem. Chris punctuated each word with an erratic little shake of their fist. Everything's burning and it's all Kulo's fault. Michiko filed the information away. Kulo, how so? No, don't tell me yet. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's get you back to the embassy. Alex must be worried ill. Chapter 8, Ojo In all of his time as warder, Ojo had never seen this crying chamber so crowded, so thick with angry civilians of every social standing. Dock workers and noblemen, merchant princes and their aides, all jostling for the opportunity to speak. A balding man who'd never seen a day of fear in his life, his shoulders draped with diamonds, was speaking. But my family had precedent. A woman, tall, slender-hipped, muscular in that way that spoke of a deep-rooted pragmatism. Cut him off. Shut your mouth. Our clan has fought in Kulo's name for a thousand years. Generations have died in service of our nation. If there's anyone, my niece. She's so young. She's just a child. Please. Please. The air filled with a million permutations of the word. Ojo lost track of individual requests, nodding where he could. Platitudes doled out like pieces of his soul. Please. His people were desperate. Although he'd instructed his aides to take comprehensive notes, Ojo knew there was no real point to this. At the end of the day, it was always the same thing. Save them. Save the ones I love. The council members from the High Sky Party gazed down on them like impartial gods. Because of the sheer number of attendees, Ojo had been forced to project their image onto the wall, leaving them ghost-like and enormous. Nenge, he thought, was delighting in the effect. Ojo ground his teeth as she smiled down at the petitioners, empty promises spilling from her mouth, caveats threaded into every statement. The people here were too desperate, too frightened to take notice of how everything she said was contingent on something else, conditions that Ojo knew would never be fulfilled. He longed to correct them, but this wasn't how he'd fight this war. The hours passed. More bodies arrived. Representatives from the other nations. Cassia, sharply dressed in black, presented Vania's withdrawal from no less than six trade agreements. Takeshi removed Ikaro from two. There were delegates from the smaller islands, too. Faces and names that Ojo knew he should recognize, but did not. Nevertheless, he took their requests, filed their complaints by order of priority, and passed them on to the guildmasters where appropriate. It wasn't until the arrival of a representative from one of Mirtika's smaller conquests, an island that had once had a name of its own, that things grew ugly. 
The delegate, flanked by a convoy of Mertican blade crafters, strode into the room and arrowed toward Ojo. A rolled up parchment in her grip. Six of our smallest provinces, she said. Excuse me. She flashed her teeth. The woman was tall, taller even than Ojo, and while spindly was anything but graceless. Six of our smallest provinces were stolen by your armies. The door slammed open again before Ojo could reply, and the room fell silent, their attention riveted by the group silhouetted in the light. There were seven figures, all members of the Rumican embassy. Chris at the vanguard, an accompaniment of blade crafters to either side. All of them held their swords at ready. This, Ojo knew, would not be an easy conversation. Warder then, Ojo said. Rumika has grounds to believe. No introductions, no formalities, straight to business. Chris stalked forward as they spoke, restless as a storm. Akuloha has been acting in bad faith. We have evidence that proves Akuloha had always intended to violate the treaty. That was, what is this child doing here, Ojo? Nenge's voice. Ojo slid a glance over his shoulder. Warderden is not a child. But he, Ojo flinched at the choice of pronouns. Nenge was on the offensive. Acts like one. No greeting, no genuflections, not even an appointment. Did you invite him here, Ojo? No, he answered. She'd spoken his name the way another might talk about the village idiot. But as the Rumican warder, they... Ojo stressed the word. Possess the right to... Tell him to leave and to approach us through formal channels. Guildmaster, I'd advise that you... Chris's voice crested over theirs. I am standing right here, Guildmaster. If you wish to speak about me, you should address me directly. You are not worth my time, boy. Nenge flicked a look down at the Rumican warder. When we wish to speak to you, we will... Light, concussive. The air flexed and roared. Ojo threw an arm up to protect his eyes as the world emptied to white. There was no sound at all, not even the thump of his heartbeat or the breathing of the crowd. Only silence and the salt white glare. Slowly it dissipated, fading away, and Ojo lowered his arm, blinking in the aftermath. He saw Chris standing at the edge of the stairs to the viewing pool, sword extended. Their expression was one of incredulity and fear. Their shoes, Ojo noted with some confusion, were damp. As whispers poured across the room, the reason for the moisture clicked. Ojo jerked a look behind him, startling at what he saw. The guildmasters were gone. The viewing pool was empty. Whatever Chris had done, they'd blasted all of the water from this place. Ojo dragged his eyes back to the Rumican warder, who'd begun to withdraw, their expression ashen. Wars had been waged for lesser things. What have you done? Ojo whispered. You said it best, Ojo. Chris smiled without humor, their eyes hollow. This is war, my friend. You're listening to Born to the Blade, Episode 7 by Cassandra Ka, starring Exe Sands. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Realm, listen away. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. 
Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Born to the Blade is created by Michael R. Underwood and written by Michael R. Underwood, Marie Brennan, Cassandra Kaw, and Malka Older. It is executive produced by Julian Yap and Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith.